Welcome back. It's good to see you all again. Um, last week, we looked at Zechariah chapter 9, and there we saw Zechariah making very explicit prophecies about the coming Messiah. Uh, for example, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, or we also have prophecies like this. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so when we pick up in chapter 10 this evening, we might think that the story is just going to keep moving forward in a very linear way. That is, tonight's passage is going to begin with the first coming of Christ, or maybe a little bit after that, and it will continue through the church age. And, and that is possible. Uh, the reason why we assume that, though, is because that's the way that modern Westerners tell stories. We do it in a very linear manner. When we go back and read the Hebrew Bible, we discover that is not the normal way that they tell stories. The normal way that stories or narratives are told in the Hebrew Bible is they circle back around and they redevelop themes. And they do that kind of in a, instead of going A, B, C, D, E, F, they'll go A, C, E, F, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. They're kind of like advancing the story, but they're going back a bit. I think that's actually what's going on tonight. I think when we begin tonight's story, the first three verses are actually not talking about the coming of Christ. They're talking about that period of time from between Zechariah's day and the coming of Christ. Then when we move to verse four, we're going to have three very explicit, in my judgment, um, declarations of who the Messiah is in terms of um, what he does as the cornerstone, as the peg, as the battle bow. And then we're going to move past that, right? Remember, the stories do, do advance in Hebrew narrative to the Lord regathering his people after Christ's first coming. That is right now in the current church age. Um, some of you might see that a little differently than I do, and that's fine. We'll talk about that tonight. We'll learn from each other. Uh, that's the point of having a Bible study together. I, I should say there's a maybe a handy way that you would organize these three basic movements in tonight's chapter. Certainly, this is what we would be doing if Silas or I were preaching this passage. Uh, we might use these, these three headings. The Lord announces judgment. The Lord brings judgment, or the Lord brings salvation. And the Lord restores his people. Judgment and salvation are, inter are, are very intimately intertwined there. Uh, we can't really escape that, although I would say perhaps the stronger emphasis is on, in that middle point, the Lord brings salvation. So you want to think of this passage perhaps in terms of the Lord announcing judgment, the Lord bringing salvation, and the Lord regathering his people. Well, we'll talk about that together in a moment, but before we do, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together this evening. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to us that you have given us your word. Uh, not only the re record of events as they've happened throughout sacred history, but your interpretation of those events, that we would understand what you were doing, what you will do, and how you are calling us to live by faith in this present age. We ask this evening, as we consider this portion of Zechariah together, that you would stir us up to love and good works, that we would grow in our knowledge of who you are, 
and the astonishing things that you have done and are doing through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would someone read the first two verses of the chapter for us this evening? That's Zechariah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. People, thank you. Um, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field, but the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Mm. Thank you, Jason. Um, So we begin the passage with what seems like really good news. It's very positive. Ask the rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. We have to remember that uh, in an agricultural society, which is most of world history, but agricultural society like Israel, rain is literally a matter of life and death. And the Lord is saying, you ask, I'll give it. So at first blush, it seems very positive. But we actually see when we look at verse uh, two, that there's a contrast between what the Lord is saying, right, ask me, and what some of the people are in fact doing. Um, they're engaging in various types of idolatry with household gods, Uh, even if you want to say that in a a lower key way, superstitions about the future with household gods, rather than trusting the Lord. So there's both the promise of blessing, but there is a type of rebuke and and an observation from the Lord about a problem that his people are facing in terms of their lack of faithful shepherds. Let's start with the blessing. Does anybody know what the spring rains do in Israel? You often hear this, by the way, in Israel, when you go through the the, the Bible, it talks about the early and the latter rains. So these are the spring rains. Which are these? Are these the early or the latter rains? You got a 50 shot. Early rain. Ray says early rain. Do we have any other votes here so we can have a, a, a debate live on Zoom? The spring rains or the early rains? Ray, that was an excellent guess, but it turns out to be incorrect. Oddly enough, because just how their their cycle goes, the early rains are the fall rains uh, that really get going in October in Israel, and the spring rains are the latter rains. Um, I don't know if that'll help any of you, but what do the latter rains do for the crops in Israel? Remember, it's a very dry land, right? You get rain in the spring, rain in the fall. uh, the fall, you get a little bit of rain in between them, right, over the winter, but it's, but it's pretty mild. The people are really depending on these two rains. And uh, often in biblical prophecy, one of the promised blessings is God's going to give the latter rains because the latter rains do something specific. Anyone have any idea? Okay, if you didn't look it up, you're not going to guess. Um, the spring rains actually help them plant right? It softens the ground up. They do have some early crops, but it allows them to plant the seeds. The latter rains are what cause the fruit. Uh, I mean by that, the wheat and everything too, the grains, 
to really flourish and produce bumper crops. And so latter rains are connected with rich harvests. And God is saying, ask for the latter rains and I will give them to you and you will have abundant harvests. That's my desire. My desire is to bless you. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Yeah, you kind of have to look that up if you didn't, you know, study that somewhere. Um, Verse two, uh, however, poses a, a comparison. It compares Yahweh as the giver of rains with the household gods and diviners. Uh, diviners, of course, who can't actually do anything. They don't control anything. They can't actually predict the future. But it does seem that a fair number of people in Israel, or at least a, a meaningful enough to be mentioned here, a group of people are doing that. What they're doing is, is they're saying, we are so dependent on rain. You know, I'm going to break out my, use a modern term, my lucky rabbit's foot. Or perhaps they're trusting in people that are like trying to read signs to figure out when do we plant, right? Uh, it, it, this is a very common thing in the ancient world, in the Canaanite world, where Israel is living. I mean, it's pretty laid on in their history. It was just full of this idea of somehow connecting with uh, powers, forces, gods, goddesses in some way so that you can get fertility. And Yahweh is saying, I am the one who gives fertility. I am the one who gives rain. Can anyone think of any examples of this in the Bible that are pretty dramatic about the lot, the Lord making clear that he's the one that gives rain? I'm thinking of one in particular, but maybe there's others. Come on, you can read my mind. Elijah? Elijah. Yeah, Elijah prays, and for three years, God withholds rain from Israel. And then you have that wonderful battle up on Mount Carmel you know, between the 450 God, um, uh, prophets of Baal and Elijah. And, you know, Elijah's like, look, you know, the God that answers by fire, he's God. And the, the, uh, the pagans are dancing around the altar. They're cutting themselves and stuff. Nothing happens. Then Elijah prays and fire comes and it consumes the bull, the wood. It licks up all the water in the, in the thing. And I think you could even say it licks up the dirt. Um, but that's not the end of the story. Um, Elijah then goes out and he prays to the Lord for rain. And, and we're told that um, he prays three times, I think. I may be wrong about that. I think it's three times. And he looks up in the cloud. He sees a little tiny cloud the size of a human hand. And Elijah goes, yep, God's answering. And he, and he tells the king, you better get going because otherwise your chariot's going to get stuck in the, in the mud, which seems bizarre after three years of drought. And the Lord sends rain and replenishes the land. It's a clear demonstration that Yahweh is God the one who gives fertility, or the one in judgment who withholds it. That's really what's going on here. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't go after those pagan things. Now, I trust that none of you have household gods, and you're not really trusting in rabbit's feet or other things, right? Um, if you are, come see Silas. He'll, in a very nice, calm way, explain that's really bad. If you want, someone's going to be more, you can come see me. <clears throat> Um, but how do we trust in things of people's ability to predict the future when in fact they can't do it? I wonder if any of you think about that. Like we put our confidence that we're going to have a secure future, a happy future in things that are other than God. And, and I'm not talking about good planning because there's God calls us to make plans, 
But but does anybody like make a living basically selling promises of the future that we're prone to believe? By the way, I'm not speaking against the profession here. I'm just saying how it actually works out in practice. Um, there are ways that this comes up in our society. So in very crass ways, you know, there's the fortune tellers in the corner. I trust that none of you are going to fortune tellers. Although I recall when I was at um, working at St. Francis, there were a number of Roman Catholics uh, who would go to fortune tellers because they wanted to know if they were going to get married when they got, you know, or they're going to be single for the rest of their lives because their desire to know the future overcame their religious commitment to not doing that. But does anyone have any other just kind of practical examples in our society where people basically tell you they can predict the future to some degree and that we're prone to buy it because we want to know the future? I got a very quiet, stoic group tonight. Don't make me call on you. I'll give you a hint that's not that helpful. I used to do this. Now, I didn't actually predict the future, but I had this as one of my many, many, many jobs in my life. Nothing. Okay. When I did financial work for Boston Partners, uh, one of the things that struck me, and I personally didn't do it. In fact, I tell people the very opposite. But one of the things that struck me is, is a huge amount of the financial planning industry is based on the idea of selling, not Everyone would say, no, I can't tell you the exact future. But what they would do is you develop charts and, and um, um, financial plans based on if you save $300 a month and you get an 8% return per year on a 60-40 portfolio, blah, 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 blah. When you're 65 years old, you're going to have $2.3 million and you'll be able to retire comfortably. That's a huge thing that comes out in the financial planning industry. Now, nobody would be so dishonest to say, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but the industry wouldn't because they get sued for it, that this is guaranteed. But what they're actually doing is creating the illusion that if you are wise, that is, you entrust your money to me and my planning, you're going to end up with a good result. Now, please don't mishear me here. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with planning and saving money for retirement and all that. Those are perfectly good things. Um, but what I always used to tell people is, you know, you ought to backtest your your financial plan. And people would go, oh, that's precisely what we've done. We've backtested this. And I go, no, 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 no. You're backtesting it in America over the last 40 years. I want you to start in 1910 in Germany and ask how your plans would work. Remember, Germany was the, one of the wealthiest. It was the most sophisticated culture on the face of the earth in 1910. And if you backtested your plan from 1910 to 1950 in Germany, you had to predict two world wars, a Great Depression, and most importantly, a war in which um, the Germany got completely destroyed. And the reality is nobody predicts that when they're giving you those nice charts that say, if you put $500 a month away for retirement, you're going to be just fine. Um, not picking on the financial industry. I'm just saying we actually all have a natural desire to want to know the future, whether it's, am I getting married? Am I going to be adequately prepared for retirement? Am I going to get ahead in my career? Whatever those things happen to be. And we can actually start leaning on human plans rather than the Lord, when in fact our actual security is only in Yahweh, right? Good goods and kindred can go. The Lord is the one who will stand. Um, so I, I think that's actually a big part of what he's saying here. 
Um, what we're going to see, though, is um, at the end of verse 2, the Lord says, therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So I pointed to the fact that these household gods, to me, suggest this is before Christ comes. It's very hard to put that into the church context. Um, but also the fact that the Messiah hasn't come is, I think, evident because the people don't have a shepherd. And the Lord is criticizing the faulty shepherds that Israel has. So here's an easier question. Who are the shepherds? Much easier than what are the spring rains? Who are the shepherds that the Lord's criticizing? Probably the, the leadership in Israel. I'm not sure if it's more referencing priests versus um, kings or governors, but probably leadership of some kind. Yeah, Rachel, I like that because uh, leadership's the important term. We carry this term shepherd, pastor over and in the New Testament, we talk about ministers. Uh, but the issue here is broader than ministers, so priests and civil rulers. And you'll note that in the Bible, the civil rulers often, by the way, this is true throughout the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, civil rulers are often fashioned as shepherds, right? Shepherds of the people. Uh, that's why in um, Psalm 1, when we say the Lord is my shepherd, uh, some people have run way too hard with this, with, with um, domestic shepherding imagery of, you know, a guy with a staff with walking around with a robe and a bunch of sheep. Um, it's the shepherd king, right? The Lord is my shepherd is the Lord is my king who provides for me and cares for me. So I, I do think it's, it's all those people. And so if you think about Israel coming up to the time of Christ, the people in particular you'd be thinking of would be the Sanhedrin, right? So you think of elders throughout the land of Israel, but the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, um, they would be considered the shepherds of the people. And they're not, they don't, for the most part, do a very good job of it. But actually also people like Pontius Pilate, right? Civil governors would have a shepherding role for the people. It's not just those who claim to be Jewish. Um, does God say anywhere that civil rulers are somehow related to him, all of them, and they have a role of serving? There's somewhere in Romans, but I don't remember where. It's late Rachel, Romans. Rachel, that's good enough, actually, here, I think. Um, uh, they're called God's ministers. The civil, Paul calls the civil magistrate, and he has in view very much the Roman civil magistrate, the civil magistrate is God's minister for good. Now, of course, the reality of ministers is ministers can be faithful, ministers can be unfaithful, right? So Pontius Pilate, for example, was a really miserable minister who was unfaithful to God. He was, a, he was not a very admirable person, apart from... Um, putting Jesus to death, even though we knew he was innocent, uh, even in secular Roman sources. I mean, he does get recalled back to Rome. In secular Roman sources, nobody really has a good word uh, for Pontius Pilate. That's true in our own day, right? So you could think the governors of our states, the United States Congress, the President of the United States, the Supreme Court, uh, to some degree, uh, they all have that sort of role. And of course, ministers of the gospel, like Pastor Shryak and I, uh, we have responsibilities before God for how we carry out the tasks that we have, the, the, the responsibility and authority that we have. And the Lord uh, in verse three is quite strong. My anger is hot 
against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. So you realize that the reason why God judges the shepherds is not just some sort of isolated um, issue. It's because God cares for his people. And it's out of God's love for his people that he holds the shepherds of his people to high standards, right? Whether that's civil leaders, that he's going to bring in a judgment because they mistreat his people, or it's um, the, those who are set apart in our own day as pastors, uh, God does say, I'm going to bring them into judgment because I love my people. Um, I should have asked that question. I actually just asserted it, but did this all go away with the coming of Christ? Or does the Lord still hold shepherds accountable today? Both civil and pastors, ruling elders. Does God still hold ruling elders? We got, we got Jason here. Does God still hold ruling elders accountable for how they shepherd their people? And can you think of any verses in the Bible where that becomes clear? Because we are Bible folk here. Yeah, we just you just preached on that through James, right? <clears throat> James does say things about this. Ray, do you have something in particular in view? Yeah, that, um, that teachers, preachers will be held to a greater degree, account- accountable to a greater degree. And Jason's going, Shh. I am a ruling elder, not one of those risky teaching elders. Any place in the Bible, let's say Acts, where elders are told they're going to be held accountable? Yeah, actually, one of the things that we're told that's in a couple of places, I'm thinking in Acts, is that um, we will give an account for how we look out for the eternal destinies of the people entrusted to our care. Yeah. So um, this is this has not gone away, and you'll also see in the New Testament, um, it shows up in Revelation that God holds civil rulers accountable for um, their their lack of faithfulness to their office. Uh, we don't get a lot of that in the letters because the letters aren't written to civil rulers; they're written to churches. Yeah. But then we get up here in verse four, uh, the second half of the, the uh, verse three. But um, in verse four, we get at least three clear markers of the Messiah himself. You remember in chapter nine, prophecies of the Messiah were very explicit. I think these are quite explicit too. So look at verse four with me. From him, that is from the Lord, shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. So who or what is the cornerstone? How does the cornerstone work in a building? The first part of the foundation that sets the the level, um, it, it sets the the main um, strength of the structure. That is correct. So who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Yeah, that's right. We need a bunch of young children here. You always got to be careful when you ask young children questions because they are very likely to answer Jesus. You know, so don't say, who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? They may say Jesus. Um, and of course it's Jesus. In fact, we have all these prophecies in the Old Testament that get fulfilled. And we're told the, the connection in the new of the Lord saying, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, right? Precious. 
uh, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, by the way, right? The same cornerstone, but the foundation upon which the entire church is built, right? So sometimes, because that's how images work, Christ is described as the foundation for the church. Sometimes he's described as the cornerstone for the church with the apostles also being the foundation. But the key thing here is the entire church is built on Jesus Christ. And so um, Zechariah is pointing forward and saying, uh, Jerusalem hasn't really been established very well. Got run over. We're having difficulty rebuilding here. But God is going to send the Messiah as a cornerstone. And that actually ties over to the next image, which probably isn't very familiar to you, but the peg. Um, in fact, I'm not sure the ESV translation here is ideal. From him, the tent peg. But did anyone look that up? Maybe you have a study Bible note or something that might have made that clear. What's the peg relating to? It gives the structure stability. Gives the structure stability. That's right. So when, when we think of tent pegs, we naturally think if you've got a tent and you've got ropes coming out and you put a peg that holds a rope up and it holds the tent in place. But actually, and that's why I'm not sure this is a very good expression here, this same word for peg could be the key thing inside the structure, right? That ties the whole structure together and everything hangs, as it were, structurally on this peg, right? You might think of it as um, uh, the foundational beam even uh, of a structure, the way it would have been built in the ancient world. Um, let me give you a Bible passage because I think Zechariah has a very specific passage from Isaiah in mind. By the way, when you're reading Zechariah, it's important to remember where we are in redemptive history, right? So Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, and he has in mind, and it comes up over and over again, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, who are all, Isaiah starts, you know, is a pre-exilic, and then Ezekiel and Jeremiah are throughout the exile, and they're all talking about the restoration and the coming Messiah. The people in Zechariah's day have that as scripture. Zechariah is referring back to the uh, prophet Isaiah. If you're taking notes or you just want to look back at this video, it's uh, Isaiah chapter 22. And I want to read just a little bit um, from Isaiah chapter 22, beginning at verse 20. Just pay attention. The word peg is used twice in this passage. And you'll just see how it works. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups of all the flagoons. Now, I have to go on here and say one more verse, because up to that point, it sounds like Eliakim is going to be the Messiah, right? He's the one upon which everything is going to hang. But then in verse 25, the next verse, we read this. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place 
will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now that passage from Isaiah has very strong messianic overtones. In fact, some of these things are quoted about or by Jesus about himself in the New Testament, right? Uh, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus picks up on this language of um, he will shut and no one will open. He will open and no one will shut. That's about him. But see, in Isaiah, we're told that Eliakim has that sort of role and he can't bear the weight of it. He can't carry Judah's house. He's a peg that's going to give way. And Zechariah is telling the people in his day, yes, but the Messiah is still coming. The one who is the cornerstone will also be the peg, and everything will hang on him. And unlike Eliakim, he will never give way. Does that make sense? Is an image. So, like I said, this is not, you, you gotta look that up. That's not, it's not a common image. Cornerstone is a much more common image. But actually, this language from um, Isaiah 22, you're gonna see, gets picked up a number of places in the New Testament and applied to Jesus right? Uh, not, not as a one-for-one one fulfillment of prophecy, because it's originally about Eliakim, but it's clearly messianic language. And Zechariah is saying, don't lose hope. God's sending the cornerstone. He's sending the one upon which everything hangs. In light of that, you ask the question, what's the battle bow, right? We're told that um, the Lord is going to send a battle bow. Who or what is that battle bow? That's a little trickier. What do you think? I think I have a tent peg question. <laughs> tent peg, go ahead. Um, do you think that it's any kind of callback to the story of JL or, or in context, I think it fits better with the cornerstone, but do you think that would have been in view at all or probably not? I think probably not. So there we have a tent peg being used to kill an enemy. Um, it, 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 that, would, that would work really nicely with the next image being a battle bow. I, I think, you know, that it would. Um, but I, I do think that uh, Zechariah, particularly throughout his prophecies, has Isaiah in mind. And so it makes a lot more sense to link it to Isaiah 22 in this very messianic imagery about Eliakim. Um, but that's an interesting, it's an interesting connection. I just don't think that's what he has in mind. Yeah. Kind of like the thing with Jael, right? Bold woman. Whack. Okay, how about the how about the battle bow? The battle bow is a little tricky, actually. Is the battle bow Christ? And at least one of you has three years of seminary. <laughs> I was gonna say that it doesn't seem like the battle bow is Christ, but it points to him as being a warrior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it could be Christ or it could be a, a Christological sort of reference. Uh, but if you were with us last week, one of the things you saw is that, um, interestingly enough, while the Lord was coming to bring peace and to take away weapons, military weapons, um, from his people, right? So the church does not advance through military uh, fighting. The Lord actually was going to make his people a weapon. And so I, I think the key thing here to see is it does relate to Christ, whether Christ is the weapon, right? Christ is the one that's going to conquer, even if he's going to conquer through his people, as it were, in terms of spreading the gospel. 
Um, here's a key thing, though, from um, William Gurnell. I don't know if that name's familiar to, to you, but he wrote a big fat book called The Christian in Complete Armor, um, based on a fee. He's a Puritan, so, you, you know, they, why, why use two words when 100 will do? Um, they, um, he, he was basing it on the imagery of put on the full armor of God in Ephesians, right? And William Grinnell makes what I think is a really helpful observation. He says in all human armies, the generals, the commanders get their strength from their troops, right? The only reason why a general has power is because he's commanding, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 troops that are well-trained, well-armed and so on. In the church, it's the other way around. All the troops gain their strength from their commander. Right? So even if the battle bow here happens to be the people, it is Christ who conquers. Uh, I just I was listening to someone talking about spiritual warfare today um, when I was in my car. Um, and one of the things that um, concerns me when people talk about spiritual warfare is it is true that you are going to overcome Satan. But it's only partially true. What's really true is Christ is going to overcome Satan through you. Right, so when you come to the end of Romans chapter 16, Paul writes that the Lord is soon going to crush Satan under your feet. It is true that your feet are being used, but you're not going out there and like binding Satan or something and doing those sorts of things. That's never something that happens in the Bible. Rather, Christ is advancing his kingdom and he uses his people to do it. But all the power to go back to William Grinnell here, all the power comes from Christ, not from us, right? It's not because we're really good soldiers that Christ can somehow win the battle. Um, I think that's one that's worth keeping, that, that image from Grinnell is worth keeping in mind. Oh, I should say here, uh, there's another interesting thing. Um, at the end of the verse, right, the, the, there's four things in the verse, and the fourth one is, that the Lord is the one who sends out all of the coming rulers. A little hard to splice there is that all the coming Christian rulers, the good shepherds, are all the rulers, period. I kind of think it's the latter, but if you think it's the former, that's fine. But here's the question. If the Lord is sending out all the rulers, how should that impact the way that we relate to them? And yes, I know if you're looking at our political rulers, it's become more challenging over the past decade. I, I grant you that. But how do we look at rulers? Uh, it's a quiet group because you don't want to commit on this one because it impacts you. Uh, we come back to what Rachel said earlier. The governing authorities are ordained by God and they are to be his ministers. We can, in fact, see that sometimes they're being more faithful and sometimes being less faithful, but we are called to recognize they are from God. And therefore, we can pray for God to give us better rulers, but our calling is to be faithful. So when do we disobey civil rulers? When they ask us to do something against what the Lord has told us to do. Yeah. So if they command us to do something God's forbidden, or they forbid us to do something God commands, that's really the standard, right? So um, 
if they tell us to stop preaching the gospel, we keep preaching the gospel. God commands us to do it. We have any choice. If they, you know, I don't know what you want to pick. They tell you to beat your children or something with baseball bats. You don't do it, right? That, that's ridiculous, but I'm old. Um, you can come up with better examples. But let me say, actually, I noticed that the last two years, the church didn't necessarily bathe itself in glory during the COVID stuff. And I know that some of this is complicated, but we should remember the fact that the government passes laws that we don't like or judgments and rulings that we don't like, even ones that we think are bad, does not justify us disobeying the commandments. Okay? We, we might do something very different if we were in civil authority, but we don't have a right to, to disobey unless they're commanding what God forbids or forbidding what God commands. Now, I know for some people, this might fall in a different category because of harmful issues, perhaps around young children or so on. But an example that I, I've used, which I, some of you may not like, because uh, I've discovered that many people don't like this, is um, I thought that some of the ways some of the mask mandates were done were not particularly wise. I'll just say it that way. But God never commanded me to not wear a mask. God didn't forbid me to wear a mask. And so if the civil magistrate says I need to wear a mask to go somewhere, I wore a mask. I, I, I don't actually think it's that complicated. Um, I'll let you answer that one. Did you think it's more complicated than that? Notice I bring up a contentious issue. Be easier if I talked about one that took place, you know, in 50 AD and we could debate what the Romans should have done. When do you disobey the civil magistrate? Now, I will say we have a complicating factor that we live in a democracy who has a couple hundred years of tradition of civil disobedience. And we kind of nor have normalized civil disobedience. Civil disobedience actually is not, it's hard to justify from the Bible. Yeah, but it is easier to justify from American civil tradition. Don't leave the church over this. I love you guys. Just trying to tell you what I think the Bible says. Um, for me? Yeah. If I was working in a hospital that wanted me to assist in abortion. That's a great example. As a nurse, I would have to decline. Yeah, that's a great example. Now, the if there was complication from the, the abortion and the woman and something happened, I would take care of her. Sure. But, but not assist it. Yeah, so um, there are a lot of things that come into our life where it gets really difficult because... Um, governments do things that we think are wrong. I just remind you that in the first century, Jesus talks, tells people to obey the Sanhedrin and the gov civil government, presumably including Pontius Pilate, but definitely the Sanhedrin, very clear. Um, Paul uh, is telling us that we ought to honor the civil magistrate. And he probably wrote that while Nero was on the throne. Jesus and Paul were not telling us to honor the civil magistrate because they were really good civil magistrates in their days, right? But because they were ordained by God. And, and actually the Bible says that order with bad rulers is more desirable than anarchy. Very hard to spread the gospel and to raise families when there's anarchy in, in, in the world, right? I think in America, because we've had so much stability, we kind of take anarchy off the table is an option. And if we had to spend some time in some of the um, struggles where there's just warlords and stuff in parts of Africa, 
we would probably get that point a little more strongly. Anyway, we should move on from there. I've kind of beat that horse enough unless someone wants to add one more thing. I'll add one more thing that's only sort of related. Okay. I think, with, I think with medical stuff that kind of relates to the earlier verse two, where it talks about, um, we were talking about like um, things that we trust in that aren't really trustworthy for sort of predicting the future. I think in the medical field, that's kind of become a pretty big thing. Like even with COVID people wanted some kind of guarantee that you know, somehow we wouldn't die. And it's like, well, we couldn't guarantee that no doctor, no vaccine could guarantee that. Um, but people were trying to kind of put their trust in doctors, masks, vaccines, whatever else. Um, a lot of the medical stuff and government stuff kind of crosses over, but I think there's an element, those two ideas kind of cross over. I think it's a great illustration. It also reminds me of this very strange thing that took place is Anytime somebody changed their mind about something in terms of presenting what's going on in that very fluid situation of trying to figure out what to, what's the best ways to deal with COVID, um, there would be a whole chorus of people going, obviously, you can't trust them because three months ago, they were saying X and now they're saying Y. And I don't know, I, that strikes me as the ordinary way that we live. You have uncertain circumstances, you get new information, you make a different decision. And I, it struck me as the fact that people thought that uh, this does connect actually what you're saying though, Rachel, I, I know it may not sound right at first. Let me connect it. The fact that so many people think that people in government positions ought to be able to always make the right decision in advance is a view of how the world works that doesn't comport with the Bible and to throw them under the bus because in November, they say X, and then in April, they say Y, because there's new data, um, or they just got something wrong. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I get stuff wrong in my life. Um, I was wrong. Now I've got a different idea. Um, I think expects a type of certainty and predictability about the future, which God doesn't give to us. It's not the world that we live in. Um, let's move on and look at the end of the chapter here. Um, I think this all kind of fits together from verse five through verse 12. So if someone would read that for us, verse five through the end of the chapter. You can do that. Thank you, Ray. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah. And I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles. 
and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Thank you, Ray. Um, I think there's really two big themes in these verses. Um, The strengthening of God's people, and now we're talking, I think, after Christ. Christ has come, about the people between Christ's first and second coming. The strengthening of God's people and the regathering of God's people. I think it would be most helpful if we take those in reverse order and focus on the regathering of God's people first. Um, Let's start with what might appear to be a very simple question. Verse 6 begins, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Then the Lord continues in verse 7, then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior. What is the significance of the house of Joseph and Ephraim, or you might say Ephraim? Why are they significant here? Well, Ephraim was one of Joseph's sons, right? Mm-hmm. And Manasseh. So they, to, so they go together. So we're talking about the house of Joseph. Yeah. What's significant about them in this context? Northern tribes. Yeah. They are northern tribes. Uh, Jason, why don't you elaborate on that a bit? Why is it significant? We're talking about northern tribes. Well, they were taken away earlier, you know, with the Assyrians. So the northern tribes are destroyed in 722 BC from the Assyrian Empire, and now we're in probably 518 or so BC. The southern tribes of Judah, some of the Levites, because there's Levites in there, and and Benjamin and so on, they got brought into captivity into Babylon. A remnant's come back. But the northern tribes are sometimes referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. You'll see popular somewhat sensationalist books written about the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, Mormons think they ended up in America. Um, That doesn't hold up very well, by the way, if you'd like to explore that. Um, So why is that significant that God's talking about rebuilding the house of Joseph? Tanya, what oh, do you, you, look, you look like you're pensive here. Why, why is rebuilding the, the house of Joseph relevant here in Zechariah? No. Okay. Ray, go ahead. You don't have anything either, Ray. It's very disappointing. I always count on you to have an answer, even if it's not correct. So, I'm, refer- I'm going to defer to Rachel. Oh. All right, I'll play Ray. Uh, okay, the only the only thing I can think of <laughs> is that Joseph was before Moses in the Exodus, and that's and that's the only thing coming to mind related to this for me. It's all I got. Thank you, Rachel. That that's not it though. So Joseph here is referring to the northern tribes, and as as Jason pointed out, the northern tribes that were destroyed in 722 BC. So why is it significant that Zechariah is talking about the Lord regathering, rebuilding the house of Joseph, and he's going to rebuild Ephraim, which is one of the two biggest of the biggest tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, the two biggest northern tribes. 
the sons of Joseph? Okay, it's not really a trick question. The point is, they get described as the lost tribes of Israel, but they're not lost to God. One of the promises of the Messiah is, is when the Messiah comes, he's going to regather the people of God. Both Gentiles, as we think of Gentiles, but also these Jews that got scattered all over the place, and God's going to gather them into his church, right? So the Apostle Paul actually makes this very explicit, quoting Hosea. Um, so you think about, um, anyone know the names of um, uh, in Hosea for the children? Loa me means not my people. That's one of the names. No mercy is another one. What's the third? The only one that really matters here is not my people. Okay, we're, we're going to stick with not my people. Paul, when he quotes Hosea, points out that in the very place where the Lord said, oh, by the way, Hosea is about the northern tribes, right? So Hosea is about the northern tribes committing um, I, um, uh, apostasy by committing spiritual adultery. Right? That's the whole image of Hosea having to marry a, a prostitute. They commit spiritual adultery going after the Baals and the Ashtar and so on, and God's going to judge them. And he calls them not my people. And then as Paul quotes, quotes Isaiah, in the very place where they were called, lo and me, not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. Right, The judgment on the northern tribes was not final in terms of all their descendants are going to be cast off. God's going to gather them back. And he's doing that right now in the church. Right, that, that's, that's the point. So by the way, one of the things that means, of course, is this passage is referring to the time after Christ came and before his second coming. It must refer to that. And I just think you should be encouraged that God is gathering this vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but it includes the Jewish people or people of Jewish descent who may not even think of themselves as being of Jewish descent because they were cut off from the northern 10 tribes. What's the second thing here? We have the, the first one is um, God is regathering his people. The second is he's going to make his people strong. He's going to bless them, right? So you think about all this imagery here. Um, Verse nine and following, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries. So the scattering is the exile. That's the judgment, right? God has scattered his people among the nations. He's going to bring them back. Though I have scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries, they shall remember me. And with their children, they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles. Um, that language, I think, is significant because the sea of troubles is metaphorical language, right? He, he's not simply saying, here's a river, right? He's using real lands. He's talking about Egypt, right? And um, uh, Gilead and Lebanon. But sea of troubles, he's saying, all those hardships and struggles that are going to go on in life, I am going to cause my people to go through them. You can think of that almost as a second exodus, Right? First time he causes his people to come out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry land. And now he's saying, yeah, there's going to be all these hardships and persecutions and troubles, but I'm going to bring my people through that into my church. 
I'll strike down the waves and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. But he's also talking about the, the challenge of nations. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. The truth is, is throughout the church age, the church has often been persecuted by governments. God is not surprised by that. But God's point is the church wins. At the end of the day, the governments keep getting beaten down and the church becomes the king, his kingdom that will endure forever. So there is a sense of this huge regathering of God's people, but also the fact that God's going to cause his people to stand, to triumph, and her enemies are going to be destroyed. You see that very vividly when you read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is very much about a persecuted people, right? God's people in the first century who are being persecuted, including by the government authorities, the Roman authorities. And you pull back the veil, and instead of seeing poor, innocent, vulnerable Christians being trampled on by these authorities, what you see is, is God's going to crush the authorities that are persecuting his people, and he's going to exalt his people forever. But that's really what Zechariah is getting at here. Thoughts on that? You may have to read a little bit more of the book to see how that plays out, which we will. Come back next week. There's still more to go. But thoughts on this or thoughts on anything in the whole chapter or questions you might have? Uh, you want to ask Ray something? That would be fine. So in summary, David. Yes. Give it to us. Oh, you want me to give a summary? I thought you were going to give it to us. So this, the summary is um, God's going to bring judgment on the bad shepherds, right? He's going to provide Christ as the true shepherd, the cornerstone, the peg, who, who upon which his whole people are going to be built up. He's the good shepherd who will care for his people. He's the foundation upon which everything hangs for us. And then with the coming of Christ, Christ is going to regather his people, right? And what he means that is he's talking about taking unbelievers and making them believers, right? Uh, but he's also going to be gathering in, and we saw this last week, the Gentiles, so that his people are going to grow and flourish, and he is going to bless us, both in this age, in terms of the church spreading and the gospel spreading, and throughout all eternity. So that, that's my quick summary. Anything else? There's a, there's a nice emphasis on rejoicing. Um, there is a nice emphasis on rejoicing. Yeah. This, well, this is a very joyful thing. And of course, it's, it's rejoicing in hope. Because the rejoicing actually for us when you're getting the passage is not in experiencing it. Now, we, of course, uh, 2,500 years later after this passage, we have witnessed so much of this taking place so that we can rejoice in things that have already happened. But the idea here is, is God is giving us promises. And if we trust those promises, we rejoice in the certain hope that God will bring them to pass. Yeah. Anything else? Well, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording here.